Well, there's two things that uh, dads love. Um, we love cars and we love good deals. So I'm going to start off with a little story about how I paid $50 for this car back in 2002. All right? So it was a, a rousing game of trivia happening. There's a small group of us. And uh, there's a couple things in life that I pride myself in actually being good at. And trivia is one of those things. I have this secretary that's like on an espresso drip that's sitting in my head that's just pulling files all day long, giving me information that does not matter. So I am a wealth of useless information. And so the, the, the topic of movies comes up. And I'm like, okay, I got a question that you guys are not going to be able to answer. What was the car that Garth drove in the movie Wayne's World? Now, if you are a connoisseur of fine cinema, you would know this answer. And out of nowhere, my wife of one year at the time, we've been married for one year, pipes up and she's all an AMC pacer. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. First of all, you're not the trivia person. I'm the trivia person. <laughs> Number two, like what you do is you know the lines of songs. I make up new words to songs every single time I hear them, and I have no clue what the proper words ever are. It's kind of fun. It's always an adventure. You never know where you're going to land, but uh, songs can just uh, become whatever you want them to be. But she just pipes up, and she's all AMC Pacer. I'm all, ah, you are wrong. It's an AMC Gremlin. Now, I was supremely confident in my answer. I was not only confident, I knew I was right. And all of a sudden, Natalie's like, no, 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 my, friend's Gina, my friend Gina, her grandma drives a, a Pacer. It's the same car they used. And we started to get, you know, a little, a little more uh, excited about uh, this topic. And, and the excitement um, brought a little bit of warmth and it was turned into heat. And all of a sudden, we had this heated conversation happening. And these people around us were like, what's happening here? This is a little awkward, a little marriage drama. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I bet you. She's all, fine, I bet you. I'm all, I, and I, I try to push it. You know when you push something to like have someone else back down? So I just push a little, I, I bet you $10. And you know, we're newly married, we don't have money. Like $10, is that, that's like a, you know, like two meals at Del Taco at the time, right? Like, and she's like, no, okay, fine. I'm all, I bet you $25. She's all, fine. I'm all, I bet you $50. She's all, let's do it. And I was like, oh no. There's a level of confidence coming from you that is making me nervous. And so uh, we had to drive home and dial up on internet. And uh, we had to like start searching and lo and behold, the internet was wrong. It said it was a pacer when we all know it was a gremlin. And then after much more debate and much more looking, um, this car, cost me $50 back in 2002. I want to share with you that my desire and need to be right was not worth the risk. It was not worth the effort. It was not worth the drama. It was not worth, because in my mind, I was saving this group from, from heresy. I was saving this group from untruth. I knew where they were being led down. They were being led down a, a bad path of believing that it was a pacer, and I was there to stop it. 
in all my righteous indignation, and it wasn't worth the risk. I needed to be reminded of a few things in that moment. I needed to have like a little Jiminy Cricket or a little something, a little angel on my shoulder, say, Tim, remember these things. It's just a game. And the goal is to have fun and be right, but mainly to have fun. Number two, your wife loves you. This is uh, not something that you need to prove to her. She loves you for who you are and not for what you know. Number three, I need to be reminded that my wife liked me, not just loved me, and that was, uh, that was being put in risk at the moment. The love would continue. The liking was, uh, was kind of on the fence. And I also need to be reminded that the unity of the group that we were trying to build and the fact that I was bringing discord into this group, it wasn't worth the risk of being right. And it's one thing when you're playing a game of trivia. And it's a whole other thing when you're dealing with the church and its body and its life and its health. Timothy is such an interesting book because here Paul, who has had all these years of experience in the church, all these, all these years of experiencing um, what drives it, the, the problems that are brought into it, he writes this final letter to this young pastor uh, of a church in Ephesus, and he's like, here is my wisdom for you. You need to carry this. If you have your Bibles, we're in, first, uh, we're in 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 14, and I love that we get to receive the same words that Paul wrote to Timothy, that we get to receive those for us. And my hope, that's in the next few minutes, we will be reminded of some important things that have serious consequences, that we will have revealed to us the reasons why we find ourselves so often in quarrels and arguments, and finally, that we will start to reallocate the energy that once went towards those things, towards things that build and unite rather than divide. And I really believe that God's word is here and it wants to not only help us to realize these things, but actually change our hearts. God is not interested in behavior modification. He is interested in heart transformation. And if our hearts are transformed and we start to share his heart, that's when things change. So let's look. We have this a uh, young pastor, and Paul's talking to him, and he's all, here's some problems that are arising in the church, and one of the problems is that people are going to miss out, not stop, miss out on being a part of the spread of the good news of Jesus. And here is what we read in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. It starts off by the, these few words. He says, remind them of these things. What are these things that they need to be reminded of? We talked about last week. Eric talked about last week. If you jump back a few verses, it really kind of leans into what it is that they need to be reminded of. In verse 8, it says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended of David, according to my gospel. Remind them that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is risen from the dead, and that not even death could stop him. Now, we've heard that, haven't we? That's like old hat. Oh, yeah, Jesus raised from dead. Easter, we, from a little kid, you have like your flannel graph, and, and like you, it washes over us, washes over us. 
but I want it to wash over you again fresh. To realize the serious implications of that truth. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then the most powerful thing on this planet that constantly wars against humanity and all of life, the most powerful thing, which is death, could not stop him. So, if we start to think about that, we realize this truth. And, and Eric talked about it a lot last week. Nothing. Say that out loud. Nothing. Nothing can stop Jesus and the good news about him. Nothing can stop Jesus and the good news about him. Now, I compiled a small list. It is not comprehensive, but it starts to help us to maybe internalize what that actually means. So, nothing, and that includes, but is not limited to, politics. Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, Independents, Marxists, Fascists, Presidents, Vice Presidents, the House or the Senate, the far right or the far left cannot stop Jesus and his gospel. Governments, including republics, communism, socialism, democracies, aristocracies, oligarchies, theocracies, totalitarianism, and dictatorships cannot stop Jesus and his gospel. This also means that social movements of all kinds, gender revolutions, sexual revolutions, laws about marriage, laws about prayer, laws about abortion, laws adding rights, laws taking away rights, cannot stop Jesus and his gospel. That also means that theological differences, other denominations, heresies, cults, bad theologies, topical sermons, modern worship, drums on the stage, and even the color of the carpets cannot stop Jesus and his gospel. Amen? So what does that mean? I love this quote. This a songwriter named Sean Rowe writes this. He says, well, maybe the mountains in our eyes look more like a molehill from the other side, implying that we die on a lot of hills. We make a lot of mountains. This is the thing that can't be objected against. This is the thing that will change everything. I died on a mountain over a pacer. And it caused, cost me $50 and some maybe, probably a little more like $200 because another $150 in the marriage counseling a few years later. <laughs> and I died on that hill. And when I look back on it from the other side, I realized it wasn't a mountain. It was a molehill. What was I thinking? I love that this is a gift that Jesus wants to give us is a freedom from dying on mountains that don't need to be died on. And a freedom to start to understand that all those things that I just read on that list 
will not stop Jesus, so I don't need to be afraid that they will. Because Jesus is not threatened by one of those things. Not one of those things makes Jesus nervous. Not one of those new laws makes Jesus, uh, oh no, oh no, I've I've never seen this. He just looks at them, he knows nothing can stop me. And my people know that nothing can stop me. The more clearly we see Jesus, and this is the whole part about walking in the same direction with Jesus over a long period of time. When you do that, you start to see him more clearly. The more clearly you see Jesus and understand his love for you, the more you are able to understand that he not only is for you, but that he offers a living hope that he offers a way of looking at life that's different, that he starts to become the thing that you value most because he is so good. We value a lot of things, but what do we value most? The other thing that happens as you walk with him over a long period of time is you start to see his power more clearly. You start to experience him being victorious in parts of your life that you never thought would would see victory. You start to trust him to be in control of situations because he, he carried you through that storm and he carried you through another storm and he carries us through another storm. This church has been here for 80 plus years and there's been a lot of storms and Jesus has carried us through every one and he will carry us through the next. You start to trust that he actually can't be stopped. So, we look at this, and then we think about, well, what causes us to quarrel? What causes us to be afraid? Even uh, Paul talks to Timothy about this a few verses earlier. In 2 Timothy uh, 1.7, it says, For God did not give you a spirit of what? Fear. He did not give you a spirit of fear, but of, we remember this, like I taught this in junior high, of power, of love and of self-control, <laughs> like, or a sound mind, right? But he did not give us a spirit of fear. And yet, so often, we live afraid. We live threatened. We live scared. And it's interesting because that is where quarrels are birthed. Quarrels are birthed in fear. If we keep reading in this verse, we start to see a little more about what, what Paul is, is saying here. He says, remind them of these things and solemnly exhort them in the presence of God not to dispute about words, words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the listeners. Because Jesus is risen from the dead, because nothing can stop him, don't quarrel about words. Don't get stuck in circle arguments and and being right and and winning a bet. Don't find yourself in a place where you cause dissension instead of bringing unity. Here's the thing that's interesting. If you actually look at the word brings ruin, it means catastrophe. That's like the actual Greek word there. It's it's catastrophe. So let's reread it with that. It's interesting. 
and solemnly exhort them in the presence of God not to dispute about words, which is useless and leads to, to catastrophe. I think about what it might look like to see the people of God arguing with each other and the world around them rather than and finding them angry and frustrated and, and, and isolated and divisive instead of walking in the light of Jesus. That is a catastrophe. I look at the last year in so many ways. This has all been a catastrophe for the church. Would you agree? It's not been our finest hour. It's no wonder that Jesus, as we look and, and, and we, we, we look at, at his words and we look at what he prayed for, in John chapter 17, he, he has this last moment on earth and he's sitting before God and he's saying his last prayers to God before he goes to the cross. And he prays for himself and he prays for his disciples and then he prays for us. And he says this, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us, so that the world would believe you sent me. Our unity, or our disunity, will determine whether or not the world believes that God sent Jesus and that Jesus is God and that he is the savior of the world and he did rise again and he is alive. God's heart is that we would be one. So what is the alternative? What's the alternative to arguing? What's the alternative to this and we see that right here in the next verse. It says, be diligent, he's talking to Timothy, to present yourself approved to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handing, handling the word of truth. Paul has a different direction for Timothy. He says that instead of finding yourself in useless arguments, maybe it's time to change. Maybe it's time to think about how we're living instead of how we're reacting to what's happening around us. And I think we need to ask ourselves a couple questions. I think one question that's important as we continue to think about, like, so what do we do instead of arguing? I think a, a personal question that you need to ask yourself is, and I need to ask myself, is what do we hold that is most dear to us? What is the thing that matters most to you? What is the thing that you value the most? Followed up by, what do we believe threatens that which we value the most? Because when we can identify those things, we actually start to respond differently. We start to realize, I don't need to be scared. I think a lot of times we have kind of this, um, 
idealized view of what it is that we are responding to and the way we're responding. And I think we view ourselves more of, as a mama bear that's like defending our young, like it's a noble and, it's, and we're proud of it and, we, and we, we like, we back that. But I think way more often the church looks a lot more like this. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these, it's a wild chihuahua. They are ferocious beasts that will rip your socks apart and annoy you to death. In so many ways, haven't we have the church turned into a threatened little chihuahua? Well, all of a sudden, this is coming at us, and we respond, right? And, we, and all of a sudden, we're just big-eyed, looking around, like, what's going to come at me next? Oh, oh, my world's falling apart, and I'm terrified. I'm terrified. What's the new law? What are the schools doing now? What's the, who's, in, who's in power? What's happening here? What, what are they allowing on Netflix? Oh, what's happening here? Ah, ah, ah. And we are panicked. We're probably panicked because the thing that we hold most valuable to us actually is being threatened. Maybe our freedom is being threatened. Maybe our power is being threatened. Maybe our traditions are being threatened. Maybe how things were in the good old days is being threatened. Maybe our interpretation and our take on the Bible is being threatened. Maybe being culturally relevant, maybe just being right is being threatened. And so we respond by barking. Can you imagine walking into a room of, what, 500 chihuahuas barking at the same time? And then saying, this is what heaven's going to be like. <laughs> Not very many people are going to want to go. No, I'll take hell. <laughs> like, that's got to be better. That's got to be better than this. Let's be better than that. Let's realize that Jesus can't be stopped. That we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be threatened. We don't need to use our energies to defend, defend, defend. But what if we used our energies towards something better? I love this idea in verse um, 15. It says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the Word of God. Basically, what Paul is telling Timothy, in light of what's happening, there's arguments happening around you. Tell them to not get caught up in these war of words, but instead, this is what you need to do. You need to show what you know, to show the world what you know. So what do you know, Timothy? What do you know is the case? What do you know is the things that, that will actually make a difference. What do you know about me, Timothy? He's, Timothy has to sit there and ask, and ask God that, like, what do I know about God? And let me ask us as a church, what do we know about the truth of Jesus? And our energy is going towards showing that. I was just thinking about, like, we know that God loves us, right? 
I hope. I hope that's something that we know or are learning. If we know that God loves us, what would it look like if we stopped trying to earn his love and prove that we're lovable? But we actually lived as someone who's loved. We know that God is kind, don't we? So what if we started to match the kindness God has shown to us with the world around us? And our energy got poured in to being kind. We know that God hates sin, right? What if we started to despise the, 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 the patterns in the, of sin in our own life, and we despised it, and we were like, that, that pattern is not going to go on any longer, and, and we started to despise and hate the sin that was destroying the lives of those around us. We know that God forgives What would it look like if we let God actually forgive us? We lived forgiven, and then we forgave those who have most deeply hurt us. We know that Jesus saw the marginalized and the oppressed. What would it look like if we started to see the marginalized and oppressed and go out of our way to care for them, giving them the dignity that God does? We know that God opposes self-righteousness, What if we started to oppose the self-righteousness in our own lives and realize that it is doing nothing but causing dissension and we don't need to protect ourselves that way. We don't need to prove that we're righteous. We don't need to prove that we're better because nothing can stop Jesus and he is what's most valuable to me. We know that Jesus desires unity. What if we spent our energy fighting to see the gold in each other and find common ground rather than find the things that separate us and highlight those and create camps and tribes amongst what's supposed to be the body of Christ. We know that Jesus knew and valued Scripture. What if we spent time and energy not only learning what it says, but letting it soak into our bones so that we like Timothy, could find ourselves accurately handling the word of truth, not allowing it to get mixed in with things that don't belong with it. You see, Paul knows that if Timothy is too busy showing what he knows, he won't have energy or time to quarrel. If you have energy and time to quarrel, my guess is you're not doing enough showing what you know. And it's a journey. Let God start to shape you, remind you that he is unstoppable, remind you that he is good, remind you that that you can rest assured that you don't need to defend, that you don't need to be threatened, and start to use your energy towards these things. We go on to verse 16. Paul actually addresses a specific thing that's happening. He says, but avoid worldly and empty chatter. It will lead to further ungodliness. The word there, lead, is actually trailblaze. So empty chatter trailblazes. It clears all the way towards ungodly behavior. He says, avoid this empty chatter. He says, "Uh, and their talk will spread like gangrene. 
And you've seen that. Have you seen that? Have you seen like, like this cancerous, foul-smelling stench just drift over the internet, that drift over Facebook, that drifts up a, up a section of the church and through the, and all of a sudden, like something that you weren't caring about, that you weren't upset about, now I'm upset. Now I care. I, no, no, no. And all of a sudden, we're stirring, right? Not towards loving good deeds. We're stirring towards anger and dissension and conflict. And this was happening here. And he says, and their talk was sped like graining among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Interesting, this is the second time Hymenaeus is mentioned. A few years back, he was mentioned for someone who was struggling with blasphemy. And Paul actually said that he handed Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan so that, so that they may be dealt with so they would no longer be blasphemous. So he has a bad pattern happening here. He's back in the picture. Um, and here's what they were claiming. He says, men who have gone astray from the truth, claiming that the resurrection has already taken place, and they are jeopardizing the faith in some. See, what they are doing is they are taking some of what Paul is teaching, and they're taking some of the Greek culture that says that the body is bad, the body is evil, and only the spirit is good, and they're mixing the two. And if the body is bad and the, and, and the spirit is good, they start to change things. And the resurrection changes from being an actual fact that happened, that we participate in, into an allegory and an idea. And if the resurrection didn't happen, if it didn't actually happen, then all of this is worthless. Is this a dangerous teaching? What do you think? Yeah. This is a dangerous teaching. Wouldn't you think that Paul would be like, now you need to confront them and correct them and da-da-da, da-da, get on your horse, make sure that it doesn't get taught anymore. But look what Paul says. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who comes, who names the name of the Lord, is to keep away from wickedness. He has such a calm response. He's like, this is happening. But know this, the Lord knows those who are his. This is a quote from Numbers. Back in, in the time, there's these three guys that were in rebellion against Moses back in the day. And, and they were like, Moses, we don't think that you should be leading us. We are, we are causing a rebellion. And the main guy there was named Korah. And, and all of a sudden, so you got these three guys, you got... You got uh, Korah, Dathan, and Abram, and they are saying that, that these things need to change. And so Moses said, okay, let's find out whether or not you are from God. And so all of a sudden, these three guys come in the center of camp, and their families join them, and they kind of lay this before God and saying, are these men from God, and are what they say from God? The earth proceeds to open up. All three families fall into the earth, and the earth closes where they were. And God says, any questions? <laughs> and what do we have? The peace and assurance that God weeds out those who needed to be weeded out. He protects his church. He is in control. We can use our time and energy to do the good will of our Father instead of protecting what we think is threatening this church. Doesn't that sound so much more peaceful in approaching life? Because let me tell you, the evidence 
of a life that is being transformed is one that is experiencing the shalom of God. That means the peaceful inner transformation and outer transformation of God. That where you go, there is peace, both internally and around you. And I guarantee you that that is what people are going to see and be like, I want that. Where did you get it? I want that. Where did you get it? Not, that's a good argument. I see where you're coming from. I'm going to change everything. No. The shalom, the peace of God, the transformed life is what will change the world around us. So I want to close with a time for you to pray. And this is going to kind of be like a lead prayer, and it's going to allow you to open up yourself to, to the possibilities that maybe you are struggling to believe that nothing can stop Jesus. Maybe you are finding yourself threatened by a lot of things and being very defensive. That just maybe you need to repent of some areas in your life where you have been using your energies to defend and quarrel instead of showing what you know. And allowing us to walk out of these doors with a sense of peace about the future and about God's control rather than the anxiety that we came in with. I want to encourage you to close your eyes right now. Take a moment to realize who it is that you are coming before. The God who created all things, that created you, that knit you together in your mother's wombs and knows your heart and your thoughts, has known you since the day you were born, gave you your personality, knows the things that you get hung up on, knows the things that you struggle with, knows the vices that you entertain, yet says, you are my child whom I love. Come before him and ask him, God, what are the things that are constantly threatening me that I am afraid will take away that which I hold most dear? Ask him that. Ask him, what would it look like for me to see you so clearly that you become the thing that I hold most dear in my life? Ask Jesus to show you his goodness, to convince you of his love. to remind you of his power.
Now maybe it's time for you to repent of the ways you have used your energies to defend. They've used your energies for quarreling, for proving that you are right instead of doing the good works of God. Just admit it to him. Admit that you've been afraid. finally ask that you would start to experience the shalom, the peace of God. The peace that surpasses all understanding. Ask that you would start to experience that. Finally, that God would use that peace to change the world around you. So God, we ask in the powerful name of Jesus that cannot be stopped, that you would free us from fear, that you would free us from the need to defend, and that you would inspire us towards love and good works, and that we would experience the transforming work of your peace in our lives. We pray this knowing that you hear us in the name and person and life of Jesus.